involved with that uh, very important ministry. What a blessing to us all this Christmas. If you would please turn again to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. We'll pick up where we left off in verse 17. Luke chapter 5. I'd like to start by reading our passage together through verse 26. Luke writes, One day he, meaning Jesus, was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to keep him, bring him in, and to set him down in front of him. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with a stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins have been forgiven you, or to say get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately, He got up before them and picked up where he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. They were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear saying, We have seen remarkable things today. The word of the Lord. Well, as we begin, I'd like to first make note of verse 16 from last week. Uh, where it says Jesus often slipped away to pray. We observed that similar behavior previously. That was in chapter 4, verse 42. It is a theme in Luke. It's repetitive. It's recurrent. And we'll see it again in chapter 5. We'll see it twice in chapter 9. So Jesus' reliance on God through prayer, uh, it shouldn't be overlooked. It, it cannot be uh, overestimated and shouldn't be underestimated. I'm going to give fuller treatment to that. Just so you know, uh, when we reach chapter 5, where Jesus spends the entire night in prayer uh, before or prior to selecting the 12 disciples. And and I just didn't want to move on without making special note of that verse, as we'll see it again. But in our passage today, we see again that Jesus is teaching the Word of God. These are uh, two of his primary focuses, prayer and teaching. Prayer and teaching, you should see that theme recurrent. Previously, Jesus was traveling city to city, we've seen in Luke, teaching in the synagogues. And now at this time, due to his increasing notoriety, as we learned last week, the Gospel of Mark tells us Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in the unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. That's in Mark 1 verse 45. 
And in Luke chapter 5, verse 17, where we pick up today, uh, this is several days after the cleansing of the leper. Jesus now ends back in Capernaum. He's back in his adopted home. And Matthew 9 suggests our event today comes uh, directly after Jesus healed the demoniac while sending the demons into the herd of swine. So Jesus has just returned back to the shore of Capernaum after being across the Sea of Galilee uh, with the demoniac. He's just crossed the sea back home. There are people waiting for him, folks. This should show us how large the, the crowds are becoming now. In verse 17 it says that one day he was teaching... And there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who'd come from every village in Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. This isn't long after the healing of the leper. And I showed you a picture just a few weeks ago, if you remember, of the ruins that are now remembered as Capernaum. What that town looked like. It was a very little town, remember? Yet people were waiting for him. He returned on the boat. And there are many Pharisees there from from all over. There were teachers of the law, that is, scribes. Luke says, from every village they had come now. Just imagine how many villages there were in Galilee. And these teachers of the law from the synagogues now were all coming. The religious leaders are now arriving from Judea and Jerusalem. I don't know about you, looking at that photo a few weeks ago, I'm like, where did they all stay? I'm telling you, Red Roof Inn. Where could they have stayed? It was a really small town. It must have looked like Homestead during NASCAR week. There were probably tents everywhere. That was common in that day. People would carry with them uh, coverings in which to sleep. It must have been the scene as the Pharisees came. Because it wasn't just the Pharisees. it It was the size of the crowds. They'd come from everywhere. And like every audience, where there is preached the word of God, there is an audience uh, that is diverse in their motives. There was diversity among this audience. Um, The many religious elite came here. They're not there to learn about God and, and his word through Jesus. Like some folks that you might have met in your life, these men already know everything there is to learn. They're not there to learn. The Pharisees, they were an elite sect. They focused primarily on defending the purity, defending the integrity of what? Tradition. That was their primary role. By comparison, the teachers of the law or the scribes, some of whom were also Pharisees, they were men regarded as having expert knowledge in the law. They were experts. They were legal specialists in the law. And the Pharisees, they were there to observe if Jesus violated tradition. The teachers of the law, they were present to render a legal judgment upon whether Jesus was within their parameters according to their correct teaching of the law. What they considered correct teaching. So so these men, they didn't travel to Capernaum To learn and to grow and to worship and to love and to fellowship. Their motivation and presence, it was solely to offer their expert advice on the teaching that came from Jesus. Aren't you glad we don't have these in the church any longer today? 
Their resolve was to disqualify Jesus. That will become more evident later in the gospel as the conflicts with Christ escalate to the point where they plot to kill him. Matthew says this group here, they held evil in their hearts. My impression is, it's possible because of the leper that some of these priests arrived. I don't think they believed that the leper was healed. How do I conclude that? It's just my impression. On the, on the continued responses of the Pharisees, such as the one they gave the blind man healed in the pool of Siloam. Remember in John chapter 9, verse 18, they did everything they could to try to discredit him. They even called in the parents to see if he was really blind beforehand. I imagine this is the type of the attitude that the leper would have encountered had he gone to report to the priest as Jesus commanded him. Also, Galilee, it wasn't a prime vacation spot. It wasn't where everybody went to get away and to enjoy. No, the Pharisees came together from all around to critique the ministry of Jesus. Jesus really decides to ruin their day. For verse four, uh, in verse 17 it says, The power of the Lord was present for him to provide, perform excuse me, healing. The ESV, English Standard Version, translates this, The power of the Lord was with him. Does that mean that sometimes the power of the Lord wasn't with him? No, no, I don't believe that is what it means. Uh, the best resources, I, and I tried to read broadly on this, they, they don't give a decisive explanation. I'm just going to give you my quick take based on the context. And even John MacArthur admits, if you've looked at his study Bible or you have one in front of you, uh, he writes this, uh, Jesus' reputation had spread, and already the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him critically. Critically. They were there to judge. They were there to dismiss. And some of the older manuscripts say not only the power of the Lord was with Jesus, as does the ESV, but many of the manuscripts say the power of the Lord was present. It was present for him to perform healing. So let me just, just offer this. The Pharisees were there to watch. They were there to critique. The power of the Lord was present. I suggest the power of the Lord became visibly present. They couldn't deny it. It was seen. They were there to judge and dismiss. Jesus says, you will see through a miraculous and undeniable healing that the power of the Lord is with him. That it's with him. You can take that explanation or leave it. But what they saw, the visible sign that they saw, began in verse 18. This is what they first saw. Some men were carrying on a bed, a man who was paralyzed. And they were trying to bring him in and and to set him down in front of Jesus. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Due to the large crowds, both inside and out, people everywhere, and this place was completely full, folks. You've probably been in that type of atmosphere. You can't get in, you can't get out. 
He was already teaching. Jesus was teaching. The best seats were already taken as they always were by the Pharisees. The seats are filled. And these men, they're finding it impossible to get their friend in uh, in front of Jesus. So they carry their, their friend, these four men, up the stairs on the side of the building that leads to the roof. And th- this was common. In this region at this time, uh, for chores that would be done that required exposure to the sun and to the heat, many houses had uh, a stair that led up, led up upon the house, upon the roof. Some of the roofs, not all, some were thatch, but some of the roofs had large tiles. And they spanned between the trusses, the roof beams. And they would secure these tiles on the roof with, with mixtures of clay and mud to keep them in place. That mud could be dug away and the tiles removed. So the Gospel of Mark, if you look there, uh, you can see that it says they dug an opening. They made an opening. And you can imagine the commotion of trying to pull back these tiles and, and dig back this mud. The dirt, you know, would be falling on the people below. Light would be coming in from above. The commotion would be there. Uh, the people below, as this, as this tile is removed and the man is, is let down in a stretcher, they really wouldn't have any choice in the matter. I mean, there's a stretcher coming down. There's a bed coming down. There's a pallet that's being lowered down through in front of Jesus. They really had no choice. You're going to have to reach up and grab it and let it down. Or it's going to just fall on your head. They lowered him in, they set him in front of Jesus. But Jesus doesn't proceed straight to the healing. As we said with the leper last week, the paralytic's condition, his physical condition, it isn't his primary problem. What he needs first, and and even more, is reconciliation to God. Restoration to God to fellowship of those who worship God. So seeing their faith, Jesus said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. And notice Jesus announces the reason there is forgiveness. And it's due to the presence of faith. You know, folks, in Scripture, when, when you look at the stories and those who encounter Jesus, nearly every time you encounter someone, there is some kind of barrier to getting to Jesus. Some type of barrier uh, to an individual approaching Jesus. For the disciples, their willingness to leave their old life behind, their source of sustenance in fishing behind, they had to overcome that barrier. The leper, he had to overcome the stigma of approaching someone. That cultural isolation that he had, he had to overcome when coming to Jesus. The rich young ruler, as he came to Jesus, was going to have to overcome his love for money. He didn't do so well. But there was a barrier, his love for money. Uh, Here, the passage that we, we look at, it actually says there was a physical barrier. But there was a barrier And the one who is credited with having faith is the ones who overcome the barriers. When approaching Jesus, those are the ones of faith. They become children of faith who inherit God's kingdom. In Revelation chapter 21, John writes concerning the new heaven and the new earth, He who overcomes, he will inherit these things, and I will be his God and he will be my son. 
But for the cowardly and the unbelieving, their part's in the lake of fire. Christians are those who have overcome due to faith. They've overcome barriers of approaching Jesus. They've overcome barriers of reconciliation to God through faith. And think back to to yourself. Think of your history when, when you first professed a genuine faith in Christ. You probably can identify a barrier. It could be a physical barrier. It might be a family barrier, a social barrier, financial or emotional barrier. You never would have breached it on your own, folks, without the presence of faith that overcame. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not the result of works. Grace is a gift of God. Faith is a gift of God. It's not a result of what you do. In this picture, apply that. We discovered last week salvific faith that has an origin. It has an origin. The origin is God. He gives it as a gift. Obviously, in our context here, the faith that caused these five men, four carrying the mat and the man on it, they had faith. It was salvific faith. How do we know that? For Christ immediately pardoned this man's sins. Friend, your sins are forgiven you. His friends are still on the, on the roof. They're still up there, but he says their faith. It's plural. Their faith brought the man in front of him. And the focus then turns, because the paralytic is in front of him, the focus turns to this one, to this individual. Nobody's even looking up at the roof anymore. They're looking at this man, the paralytic. And Jesus declares that this man is forgiven through faith. Completely biblical according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. But then a tension arises in the room. A tension. Who is this Jesus? Who is this man that he can unilaterally make this declaration? How can this man do this? Can I say to anyone here, your sins are forgiven? I can't do that. I don't know man's heart. We don't know one another's hearts. I can inform you what scripture says, as in Romans 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I I can assure you of what scripture says. I don't know your heart. The assurance comes from scripture. I can't see whether you genuinely believe. You can't see whether I genuinely believe. Only God weighs the heart. Only God sees the heart. Only God can declare a person forgiven. The Pharisees and the scribes, they got that part right. They got it partly right. And in verse 21, they ask, Who can forgive sins but God alone, right? That's right. Exactly. And do they see Jesus as God? No. No, they don't. 
The Pharisees and the scribes don't. Already they're denouncing him as a sinner. For they, they label him a blasphemer for making himself equal to God. That's what they think of him. Verse 22, But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Who can see the heart? According to King Solomon, only God. Only God can see the heart. He alone knows the heart. Only God knows the hearts of the sons of men. Every single one of them, Solomon said. And in verse 22, Christ knows these men's hearts. Every single one of them. He knows the heart of the paralytic. It's on this basis of the heart of the paralytic, the basis of faith that he forgives the paralytic, not on the basis of works. He he doesn't forgive merely because someone has been lowered down through a roof. That's not the basis of forgiveness. That was an outworking of faith. Jesus saw the men's faith in those five men's hearts. The divinity of Christ. His his godly uh, uh, divinity. It couldn't be any clearer than this. He can see your heart. You need to realize that, folks. He can read your heart. He can see my heart. He, he can see it even better than we can see it. Oh, our judgment, because of sin, it's slanted. We judge ourselves way better than we should be judged. We, we, we come to awareness of that because of the gospel, because of the word of God. Uh, but he knows the reasons we're all here today. He knows the reasons I'm standing here. He knows the reasons that you came through the door. Jesus knew the Pharisees came in order to discredit him. He could see their heart. So he's going to provide a visible manifestation to prove that the power of God was with him. And the power of God became present. Uh, If there were one or more of these scribes or Pharisees that were at the temple and, and if the leper had reported to them... It would only be right that Jesus supply validation. So in verse 23, he asked them, which is easier, to say your sins have been forgiven you or to say, get up and walk? I think there might have been a delay right after this. He was seeing their hearts. He might have given them a second to think about that. Which is easier? The answer is simple. It's much easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, than it is to tell a paralytic to get up and walk. Among men, words are cheap, folks. Words are cheap. You can say anything you want. People do it all the time. Pastors declare things all the time. Even that your sins have been forgiven you. That's easy to say. Because they're just words uh, concerning spiritual things, it's, it's near impossible to ever validate them. They're just words. Ultimately, you can't prove someone wrong when it comes to spiritual things. That's the reason there are so many cults and false teachers that abound today. They can give words, and if it's a spiritual things, uh, no one can ever really nail them down, right? 
unless they give a prediction of a date to the return of something, then, then you can nail them down pretty well. You might hear pastors absolve sins. But anyone who does not know a person's heart would have been committing the same sin that the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of right here. I can't forgive sins. Only Jesus, only God can forgive sins. We can only assure one another what God's word says about your heart. After what I expect were maybe a few short moments, probably of awkward silence. In verse 24, Jesus says, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to, on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. And immediately he got up before them and picked up what he'd been lying on and went home glorifying God. That, friends, is the visible presence of God right there. The power of God was visible on that day. A paralytic walking proves Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. Very evident, very clear. And the Son of Man, that that reference to the Son of Man, it's a favorite used by Christ in the Gospels. Uh, It's no exception in Luke. It it provides an imagery. Thank you, Ruth. Imagery written by the prophet Daniel. Chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel writes, he's in Babylon. And he sees a vision far in the future. He says, I kept looking at the night visions, or in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days. That is God. I'm glad you included that in one of the songs today. The ancient of days. That is God. So the Son of Man came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before Him. And to Him, meaning the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. His dominion, Daniel writes, is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Friends, Who's Daniel talking about? Exactly. Jesus is the Son of Man. 600 years before Christ, Daniel sees it in a vision. He sees what he describes. It's it's a kingdom. I can see it. It's a kingdom of the Son of Man. It's an everlasting kingdom. One that will never be destroyed. It will never pass away. He sees the establishment of an eternal kingdom of God. What we learned just a few weeks ago is the primary subject of Jesus' preaching as he's going from town to town. Do you remember? He's preaching the kingdom of God. He's preaching exactly what Daniel foresaw. He is the Son of Man. He's preaching the kingdom of God. Jesus says in Luke 5, this Son of Man, he has the authority to forgive sins on earth. It's God on earth. As I said about a month ago, Jesus is offering Israel the kingdom. This really should have teed up the teachers of the law. I mean, it should have been a slam dunk. 
They should have seen it. And Jesus even supplies visible evidence of the kingdom. He provides them what they need to see. The kingdom of God has come upon you. And in Luke 5, verse 24, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately he got up before them. He went home glorifying God. A theologian I read named Walter Leefield. He used to be a Dallas professor. I never knew him. He's up, at, uh, up in Illinois now with Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He writes, the healing validates the declaration of forgiveness. The fulfillment of the command to the paralyzed man is impossible except by the power of God. Exactly where we were last week with the leper. But for the power of God. And through Jesus, the power of God, follow me here, it becomes visible. The power of God is seen, it's visible through Jesus. He says, I I don't come with empty words or suggestions. I come with the forgiveness of sins. This audience is blind. I'll get to that in a minute. The paralytic has faith. His sins are forgiven, Jesus says. And his faith is put on display for everyone else to see. Through what? His walk. Folks, The same ought to be said of us. When Jesus declares your sins are forgiven, and if you're the real deal, and God sees your heart, you ought to get up and walk. And when you do, the folks around you that knew you, they can't deny it. They see it. They see the walk. Your family sees the walk. Your friends see the walk. It should cause them to glorify Christ. They weren't spiritually blind. But they see it. Even though they're blind to who Jesus is, they still see it, just like these Pharisees. They can deny it, but they see it. The power of God. And so much is said in Scripture about your need, my need, uh, to walk in a manner that is worthy, to have a walk. That is Ephesians 4, verse 1. And, and we don't have time to cover this entire topic of, of the Christian walk. We could go uh, through a multi-week series on that. But I've shared with you folks how, how as a Christian we have to rise up and walk. We have to walk. I told a few of our stories in the distant past. Maybe some of you weren't here. Some might have been. When, when Rita and I got saved, which was within a very short time of one another, our folks, my folks, my mom and dad, they thought we were in a cult. They thought there was something seriously wrong with us. Why? It's because our behavior changed. Were we instantly perfect? Oh no, by no means. But we walked. We walked. I I was a pretty decent kid, but I sure wasn't any choir boy. I got into my share of trouble. My dad knew it. I was his son, right? 
He, he could visibly see what the desires of my heart were. He could, he could see where my money went. He knew what I talked about. He, he knew the content of the language that I typically used. Mom as well. They could see it. They were my parents. They loved me anyway. But when Rita and I got saved, we began to walk. Over a period of time, dad and mom saw that, that our faith wasn't just a matter of words. It wasn't just empty words. It wasn't just the flavor of the month. And I'm sure many of you have very similar stories to this. Similar reflection. And, and as the years passed, dad and mom, they watched us. Dad watched me. As his son, he watched me. They saw the support of my loyal wife as we became Christians, faithfully serving church, progressing into seminary and finishing seminary. No grand achievement. Anybody can do that. If you're willing to take the steps one after another and walk. Each of us has taken our walk. Mine might look a little different than yours. It's one step at a time. That's what it is, folks. Christianity is a walk. And my dad was a quiet guy. He, uh, he was a farmer. Simple farmer. Didn't talk much. Just a farmer. He drove tractors. But his eye, he had two eyes right here. He watched. He watched. He watched as I pursued full-time ministry. He saw as we sold our house and we moved uh, away to a frozen tundra. It's awful. He saw us do that. He saw us while we were working in Christian missions. They saw us. Day to day, they saw us. And later, Dad and Mom, they, they fully supported us when we li- left Fargo. That was just a couple miles down the road from where they lived. We moved back to Denton for, a spiritual, uh, for the spiritual support of our sending church, Denton Bible Church, and, and to follow my pastoral call into full-time uh, pastoring work. And, and as we moved... As we moved back from Fargo back to the North Dallas area, Dad was 82. Moving from two miles away down to a thousand miles away. I said, Dad, I'm sorry. I don't really want to go, but I have to go. And he said, I know you have to go. And after a tedious call process, not the one here so much as as just the process of going and meeting with churches over and over and hearing rejection uh, multiple times. No door was opening in Texas. (laughs) Rita and I actually said we moved back to Texas. We're not not leaving Texas again. I bet God thought that was funny. And I told Dad... You know, no door was opening in heaven and, or in, in, in Texas. That, that must have been the Spirit talking there. <laughs> no, no door was opening in Texas. My, my home church said, you know, you're going to have to open your parameters up a little bit, which was wise advice. And it had come down to one remaining church in Port St. Lucie, I told Dad on the phone. One remaining church. This was in October of 2013. And I said they had narrowed it down to four candidates. Each will receive a Skype interview and they're going to invite one of them to come out and meet the congregation. And knowing the difficulties we had, Dad said to me, 
they're going to choose you. I replied, I don't know, Dad. I said, I'm sure they're, those other men are qualified. So, I, you know, thanks for the encouragement. He said, no, they're going to choose you to be their pastor. I said, why? He goes, I've seen God working in your life. He's seen it. He passed away that November 5th. But he was right. Friends, your story isn't much different than mine. The point I want to make is our family members, our friends, our loved ones, those we don't even like that much, they're watching us. They're watching our walk. They're looking to see if the faith that you speak, the words that you say are empty or whether they're really genuine. And when faith is present in your heart and we have publicly ourselves, through baptism uh, proclaimed that God has forgiven our sins, folks, we've got to get up and walk. We need to give glory to God because our walk is a visible display of the power of God in our lives. We need to show them, you and I both, just like the paralytic did, that Jesus has changed our lives. And though before Christ, each of us previously had lusts and greeds and other immoralities, everybody's got their own resume, don't lament those previous infirmities. They provide a visible testimony to the power of God to change your life. As the Apostle Paul says, do not be partakers with them. You were formerly in darkness, but now you are in light of the Lord. Walk as children of the light. So, if you're a new convert to Christ, if you've recently professed Christ, whether before your friends, before your family, before the room in front of you, like the paralytic, stand up and walk. If you're a long-term convert to Christ, you've, you've stumbled, you've fallen down, people are still watching. Get up and walk. Get up and walk. Recommit to Christ. We each have an audience. We each have a circle watching us. We aren't responsible to know what's in their hearts. We'll never know that. But the command remains the same to us. Take up your mat and walk. I don't think there are many converts in this crowd. There are obviously a few. But they were all, however, amazed at the person who walked. And in verse 26, they were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear, saying, We've seen remarkable things today. Their astonishment, it was universal among everyone. They'd seen remarkable things. And that word that we translate remarkable in, in many of our English translations, in, in the Greek, it's paradoxica. It's where we get paradox. And they're saying to themselves, this is not what we expected to see at all. What a surprise. Especially the religious leaders. They're shocked. A man walked. 
But they didn't come to endorse Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes didn't. They couldn't explain what happened. They had to respond in some way. They had to say something. So they glorified God. But there's no suggestion in this passage that they ever came to glorify Christ. Or give recognition to Christ for the healing. That's the difference between them, the Pharisees and the scribes, versus the lepers, the leper from last week, and the paralytic. They saw Christ. They saw him as the source of healing. As teachers of the law, they should have recognized Jesus as the Son of Man who came to build a kingdom of whom the prophet Daniel said, to him the Son of Man was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, men of every language might serve him. That's what the Pharisees and the scribes should have seen. It's easy to walk away saying, praise God. Those are just words again. And Jesus said words are very easy to say. You hear those words spoken even today by all kinds of unbelievers. Praise God. But do your words lead you to recognize Christ as the source of your healing? That's the question. Do they prompt you to worship Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Son of Man? Does does your profession in Christ, the words that you tell others, does it have the power to make you stand up and walk? Or are you still lying on your bed? The proof is in the pudding. Jesus was able to tell people in this room, the Pharisees and everybody packed in, as they looked around, he was able to say, do you see the one who is walking? That is the one who has his sins forgiven. I'm going to ask the men to come forward to serve the Lord's Supper.